You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Hey, hey, Jess O'Reilly here, your friendly neighborhood sexologist. And today I am joined by Dr. Karen Rain, the executive director of Unhushed, an author, an educator, you do all the things in sex education with folks of all ages, but with a focus on young people and parents. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. And part of the reason I don't focus a lot on adults is because they're really hard to reach. Mm. And so I have plans in the works, long-term plans. Do you think adults need more sex education, maybe even more than teens? Do you think that we end up in a place where we think because we're mature or because we have experience, we don't need the formal education? Yeah. Or people think that, oh, like I got that when I was a teenager as much as I needed it. And um, not recognizing that things change as you get older. Bodies change. What you want out of a relationship changes. What you don't want out of a relationship changes. Like everything evolves and continues to evolve. Our learning about sexuality and relationships needs to continue through as a lifespan learning process. One pattern I observe with parents is that oftentimes you didn't receive the sex education you needed when you were younger, as we know. Uh, in many cases, it was entirely absent. And then your kid or your teen comes to you with an issue, or they don't come to you, but you observe from the sidelines. <laughs> and then you have to do the learning in order to be the teacher in some ways. And so I'm thinking of a couple of scenarios lately where some parents texted me and their 14, 15-year-old, in, in these cases, daughters, are either sexting, and I know sexting is a broad term, it means lots of different things, but sending sexy messages, um, suggestive texts, even some sexy photos, not, not nudes in these cases, and they're freaking out. They're really concerned. They see it as a moral issue, as an ethical issue. They see this as something that could potentially ruin their daughter's lives. And as much as like, you know, we can understand that visceral reaction that you want to protect, we're bringing our own values into our reactions. So I, I bet you have some really good strategies for managing a situation like this. How do you take care of yourself so that you can address your child, who, by the way, I say child because they're your child, but they're a teen, they're a young adult. How do you address their needs and support them and help them to make decisions that work for them? Yeah, you know, even and even if a parent had received really good sex education, it would not have included sexting. No, it's a new landscape, isn't it? It's totally new. They did the, the sending letters by Dove. Send nudes oh. and I'll send it by pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it is. It's a totally new landscape. And, you know, who is an expert on something that's brand new? So what I fall back on is answers about, like, how, how can you be a really good parent in ways that are special and specific? Uh, so my book for parents is called Breaking the Hush Factor, 10 rules for talking with teenagers about sex. What are they? Well, the first, there's three kind of chunks of them. And the first set of rules is all about preparing yourself for the conversation. Okay. And I feel like this is actually the most important step around something like sexting, where you don't understand it, 
you you disapprove of it. You're worried. Scares you. You're worried about it. You don't really know what it means in the adolescent landscape because it, it's such a new element. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, it's all about diving into yourself and figuring out where you stand and how and remembering how that does not mean that you can control your kids. It doesn't mean that your choices are the same as your kids. And it doesn't mean that your teenager's choices are wrong for them. So that's kind of what that first set of rules does for parents. I like the preparation as opposed to sort of the reactionary response. And when you think about all the important conversations you have in your life, whether it's, you know, a job interview or talking about a, a relationship, talking about a breakup, which we'll talk about after, we always prepare. You never just walk into a job interview and fly by the seat of your pants. But we're talking about something that's, you know, surrounds your your child's health, their well-being, their relationships, their future. So prepare. I love. I, I think that's so important. Yeah, and it's actually one of that exact analogy is something that I use with parents a lot. I say when you're when you when your child is actually a child before they're a teenager, you're their manager. Okay. Right. You're the one managing, telling them what to do, where to go, all the things. And once they're a teenager, you become a contractor. And so every time you are interacting with them, you're basically reapplying to be a contractor again next time. Oh, that, that's a really interesting analogy. I love it because uh, a lot of folks who are listening are familiar with the fact that I say you should treat relationships like business. There are all these business skills we mm-hmm. use mm-hmm. from setting appointments to following through to checking in to having board meetings um, to respecting people's time, uh, turning off your phone in a meeting the mm-hmm. way, you know, why don't we turn it off at the dinner table? So I love that approach. And I think that's such an interesting analogy of the contractor that you're not going to necessarily win this contract again. You have to work for it. Yeah, you have to work for it. And you have to work for your kids to want to come to you for advice and support. Mm. Do you think there's some entitlement in in parenting? Sometimes we feel like, no, I am your parent. Therefore, I am going to be the one. Yeah, of course there is. You know, and, and that comes from, of course, being the one when you have a two-year-old. Right. Right? Of course you're the one. Okay. But when you have a 12-year-old, uh, maybe you're not. When you have a 16-year-old, unless you've won their trust – you are definitely not. And so if you want to be able to have impact and space for your child to talk to you, you have to deal with your own shit first. And then you have to, um, you just, one of, rule number three is uh, stop talking. Okay. And rule number four is start listening. Because that's what teenagers really need. They know your value system. No teenager is like, hmm, I wonder how my parents would feel about me sexting. <laughs> no teenager has ever wondered that question. <laughs> my parents would love this. <laughs> <laughs> they know your feelings. Mm-hmm. They can predict your feelings very, very well. And your opinions, they are experts at predicting you. And so they don't actually need you to restate your values. What they need to do is to have you listen And they can see what it feels like to say things in your presence. And if they feel yucky, that's about them learning their next steps, not about you telling them what their next steps should be. It's this really beautiful process of them being able to um, experience themselves differently in your presence over time. Hmm. And coming to a place on their own. Most like kids that. return to their parents' value systems. Most of them do. Mm-hmm. And so, but you need to give them space to do that in order for them to really build that relationship with you from their perspective. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's a really interesting approach. I, I really appreciate it. So how do we start that conversation? Can you help us with the script? So if I'm supposed to be listening to my teen, mm-hmm. what are the questions I can ask? Because wow. I think people need very specific language. Because in the heat of the moment, you're, you are, as you said, you're scared. Mm-hmm. And so you're not being your most thoughtful, rational, articulate mm-hmm. self. Rule number five is you only get one question. Ooh. So what that means is you're going to, most parents often, what I see most parents falling down on the most frequently is they just have a barrage of questions. What were you thinking? What were you planning? Did you have any idea how that this was going to be like spread around your school? Like, I can't believe you did this. Um, you know, do you know how much you've disappointed me? Like there's just this barrage of like very judgy questions. Mm-hmm. And so when you rein that in and you say to yourself, okay, I only get to ask one question. It's like being arrested one phone call. Yes. <laughs> you have to sit there and think about what that question is going to be. It it closes your mouth. Yeah. It makes their it makes space for your teenager to start talking. And we hate empty space. And kids, when their parents sit there silently, hate empty space even more. It's so interesting you're bringing up all these things that people use in business. So one, uh, you know, in a negotiation, oftentimes if you just close your mouth, they will tell you what they want, right? Yeah. If you're negotiating price, my, my partner's a realtor. If he was here, he'd be saying this, that sometimes he'll just, he'll just sit in silence on the phone because the other realtor spills their guts and like, well, here's what we want. And they're moving and they're doing this. So here's my number. And it's like, you just talked yourself down $25,000 because I said nothing. Yeah. And he's not a fighter. I mean, Brandon's not saying he's always trying to get the most out of people. He's, they're trying to arrive at something fair. But if people aren't being honest, they can't. And silence can lead to some of that vulnerability and honesty. Yeah. Same thing works with teenagers. This. It's brilliant. So this. one question. You only get one of them. And I push back on people who ask me for a script for that question mm-hmm. because it is so context specific. It should not be a question that, should be, that can be answered with a yes or a no. So um, did you think about what the uh, fallout would be? That's a yes or no question. Mm. Don't ask that question. Don't use your one question on a yes or a no. Because the, your kid can then say, yeah, I did. And now it's your turn again. <laughs> they just lob the ball back at you. <laughs> yeah. So um, something much broader like um, – Where were you hoping that this would go? Right? That, and then just sit. Just So sit in silence until you have your question. And then after you ask it, sit in silence. Because you don't have any more things to say. You can't have no more questions. And obviously at some point you get another question. <laughs> I struggle with this. I know even when I get into an argument with Brandon, I'll <laughs> ask him one thing. I'll tell him one thing that's bothering me and then another and then another. And I, I have to remind myself that I'm overwhelming him. And he's not going to remember what I said 20 seconds ago because I won't shut up. Like yeah. I need to learn to shut my mouth. Yeah. I always, when I think of the people I admire in life, it is, they're often people who don't say as much as I do because I talk a lot mm. um, and sometimes I, I like that about myself I'm a social person I chat to lots of different types of people and meet such interesting people because of it but in intense moments I know I need to learn to shut up mm-hmm. and so I would be carrying some of my behavioral stuff into my parenting mm-hmm. right and and maybe doing damage to that relationship so I have to be a bit more mindful 
Yeah. And it really, it just, you know, people push back on it. And especially people who have kids who are quiet. They're like, my kid just won't talk because my kid is one of those quiet kids. You know, and I get that. It's hard. But that means you have to be even more quiet than your kid. Yeah. Are you making space for them to talk or are you filling the air? And so one of the next rules is to do something else, which is something that's recommended all the time, right? Like when you're having an intense conversation, do something else. Drive in a car, um, play basketball, whatever it is. But I want to kind of like turn that screw a little tighter and say do something that your kid enjoys. Oh, interesting. Okay. So it's not just about randomly picking a time when something else is happening, but actively choose something that your kid likes and do that thing with them. And, and be there. Be there with them. Even if you hate it. I don't need you to like Pokemon or, you know, video games or basketball or hiking. I don't need any – no one needs anyone else to like those things. But your kid does need you to participate in the things they love. And those are the best times. If you do those something like that with your kid once a week for half an hour, it's not that much time. But those are the times when you can like prep your question. And while you're doing that activity, ask that question. Great. And at what point do you tell them how you feel? Like, let's say you say, listen, I understand. Let's say you're very kind of reasonable about about this. I understand the desire to do this. I understand that it can feel good and we can talk about what the reasons are. And I also want to talk about the consequences. And I'm struggling with this because I have this I guess I'm conflicted in that I want to protect you and I also want you to make your own decisions. At what point do you share that? And are many parents actually talking that way? (laughs) Some parents are, and I would encourage them not to say any of those things. Okay. Your kids know that. They know all of those things. They know. Restating your position is not going to be useful. They have 16 years of living with you. And observing you. And observing you not just in your interactions with them, but in observing you in your interactions with everybody else. And their older siblings, their younger siblings, your partner. Absolutely. Social media, news stories, they have watched your reactions. And so you're keeping the ball in their court to talk. Absolutely. So what comes next? You just wait. And it's hard. But that's where I see really, and there, there is then ideally a moment where your kid asks you a question. Okay. And if your kid asks you a question, by all means, answer the question. And what about parents, for example, who are just taking away their kid's phone? So this is what I'm seeing. They're like, well, I pay for the phone bill. And so I'm taking away the phone. And I say, well, do they have a computer? Well, they need the computer to go to school. <laughs> do they have a friend with a computer? Right? Or others will say, I'm going to monitor their phone. And I mean, I can't even imagine. I would, I would suggest that most 15-year-olds are more tech savvy than most 40-year-olds. <laughs> I mean, I know there are exceptions. But I remember the phone calls where my mom was like, but how do I plug in the VCR? Which, which button is it? Which, there's too many remotes. <laughs> so what, how can you resist that temptation to say, I'm the adult here. I pay the bills. I'm in charge. How can you check that? Um, how does that roll out as an interview? for the next time something goes wrong with your kid and they need to come to you. I love that. Is like, that an effective interview process? 
I really appreciate that, that it's this interview, it's an application, so what are the consequences of my actions? Which is that they don't want to talk to you next time. Okay, so I have a story for you. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> okay, so it's not, a, it's not about sexting exactly, it's about porn, mm-hmm. but a parent's perspective that her son had no access to it. Okay, so she did not have internet at home. He did not have a computer. Okay. Um, so no Wi-Fi, no computer, no phone, nothing at her home. So uh, she had a laptop that he was allowed to use for the context of his schoolwork. Mm-hmm. So there was a laptop in the home. Um, it was hers exclusively. And there was a printer to print off papers. So he borrowed her laptop. She was aware that he was borrowing her laptop. He went to his dad's house where there was Wi-Fi. He downloaded pornography onto the computer, brought it back to their house, and printed it off on the color printer. So your question is... I like that. That's expensive ink, isn't it? I like that. That's some old school. That's like a return to the LPs in music. She found the porn in his closet when she was cleaning his closet out. And was like, oh my God, where did you get this? How did you even get access to it? They'll find access. Of course. They have more time. It's not that they're more tech savvy. Okay. Because some of them are and some of them aren't. True. But what they do have is time. The guy who printed it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What they do have is time that as parents we don't have. They have 20 hours a week to dedicate towards getting access to something that you have denied them access to easily. And they have the will. Yeah. Right. And do you have 25 hours a week to prevent that? It's unlikely. And also, if we really, I don't love the word empowerment because I, I think it gets kind of thrown around for marketing, but you do want to raise, be part of them becoming more empowered. And part of that is helping them to you know, guiding them, supporting them so that they can make decisions as opposed to having someone control what they can and can't have. Yeah, your goal, your goal as a parent is for them to be self-sufficient. That's your goal. It is not for them to listen to you at every point in time until you die. You you want them to be a self-sufficient adult. And if we're talking about a 15-year-old, in three years, they will be an adult. I know, I know. And we have, these, like, we have these arbitrary numbers and they're so close. Like we talk about how time flies when you have kids, right? They're one year old and then all of a sudden they're eight. Well, guess what? 15 and 18 are closer, not only in numbers, but in perceived time. That time flies by. And you got to know that your, con- that your relationship with them at 18 becomes the only relevant thing. They can walk out of your house and do whatever they want to without any impact without any connection so you have to be in that relationship mindset so my daughter um got arrested last year she was 17 and she called me and her father and said hey I'm about to get arrested I'm going to go and um protest the Kavanaugh appointment by closing down a road I'm doing it with other Um, activists who have lots of experience closing things down and getting arrested but I wanted you to know and if you say no I'll reconsider that was not because she had to do that that was all about the context of our relationship with her so her father went down and stood by and watched while she got arrested like he was there the entire time he followed them to the jail 
Like that's that's kind of support for a kid, whether you agree with their policies or not. She knows that she, that we have her back in a way that not a lot of teenagers feel like their parents have their back. And she came out of it saying, I will never get arrested again. <laughs> That's the one time. And you've <laughs> cultivated that over time. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. It's, years. And, years and of work. It's interesting because it's not just about sex. We're talking about sex because that's what we talk about. But this has to do with, you know, financial values, familial values, political values, religious values, spiritual values. It's yeah. not a, you know, an insular conversation where we're totally closed and, you know, somewhat take a dictatorship approach to everything else, but with sex will be open. We have to really broaden this to the relationship as a whole. Yeah. And I can't tell you how grateful I am that she came out of that being like, getting arrested is not for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and she was 17, which means it's not on a permanent record. Okay. Like there's all of these lovely elements to it that I was like, yeah, like this is a wise risk at this point in her life. And something she wanted to stand for, something that yeah. she was willing to speak up for. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about being mindful of, is this interview, as I reapply to be a contractor in my part in my child's life, mm-hmm. is it going well? Is mm-hmm. it going to lead to future contracts? It reminds me of uh, choosing and choosing family and mm-hmm. chosen family. Mm-hmm. And how in so many communities, whether it's the queer community or even in other cultures, where you might be closer to a cousin than a sibling because the family stick, you know, stays together as a huge group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have people in my family where you, cu- cousins are much closer than siblings. It's not just about blood. We're choosing mm-hmm. to have these relationships. And every relationship, for many of us, is a choice. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's a really, really great approach. Now, I'm still struggling with the be quiet. <laughs> um, so how can you... If your tendency is just to speak, is there something we can do? Is it like three deep breaths? Um, should we visualize a cloud? <laughs> How can? Because <laughs> you seem like you'd probably be skilled and thoughtful before you speak. For those of us who aren't always, how do we shut up? <laughs> yeah, a couple of things. Um, if you are finding yourself feeling like you just have to talk, you probably need to put a pin in the conversation. And say, hey, you know what? I am feeling very overwhelmed and I don't want to, I want this conversation to be thoughtful. Can we have this tomorrow at 10 o'clock? And then go and just word vomit on a friend or a therapist or a partner, whoever it needs to be. Word vomit on them, not on your child. Never vomit on your child. Never. I mean, that's the, that's living the dream. <laughs> that's the goal. Uh, to not vomit on your family members. Your child gets to vomit on you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Although times. hopefully not by the time they're a teenager. Hopefully not. You hope that they've got more aim. <laughs> um, so yeah, go away. If you need to just, if you just can't not talk, talk somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But then focus really intently. What, what the talking is doing Really, so if we're looking at um, why people talk out loud when they're thinking, and I think that that's ultimately what's happening here, is that people are thinking Mm -hmm. and those words are just coming out. Mm -hmm. And if we look developmentally at why people talk when they're thinking, it's because they're they're grappling with issues that are just slightly beyond their comfort level. Mm -hmm. And so words are just happening in their head and they spill out of their mouth for that reason. And so knowing that that's what's happening and thinking to yourself, okay, this is putting me outside of my comfort zone. 
So I have to find something to bring me back into my comfort zone. And maybe that's by um, playing basketball. Maybe that's by word vomiting to your partner before you come and talk with your kid. Maybe that's by um, doodling on a piece of paper or knitting or something else that takes that extra like energy off from your mouth. Uh, Maybe it's chewing gum, right? There's all of these different techniques that people can use, but then focus on what's my question and bring that to like tie it together because you can't talk to your kid about what your question is going to be because now you're asking questions. So like put together in your brain, line those words up and put all of your extra energy that's still remaining into that internal cognitive process. Yeah, it gives you something to focus on. Okay, yeah. I really appreciate that. I like the approach. Are you able to just uh, name the 10 steps for parents? Okay, so the 10 steps from the book Breaking the Hush Factor. Uh, rule number one, know yourself. Rule number two, it's not about you. Rule number three, stop talking. Rule number four, start listening. Rule number five, you get one question. Hmm. Rule number six, do something else. Rule number seven, Pleasure and pain, which means you have to talk about both. Most people only talk about one. Uh, Rule number eight, be cool as a cucumber. Rule number nine, bring it on. Rule number 10, never surrender. What does that mean? It's like Sisyphus. You just have to keep pushing that boulder up the hill and finding joy in the process. And being thankful. Sometimes when we feel frustrated, I think, oh, I don't have to. You know, you don't have to drive your kids somewhere. You get to drive your kids somewhere. Yeah. So Camus really re-envisioned the uh, Sisyphus fable of Sisyphus being eternally condemned to pushing a boulder up a hill, having it roll down, pushing it up the hill again, having it roll down. And um, one of the quotes from Camus' revisioning of this is, the struggle itself toward the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. And that's really, I think, emblematic of what parenting is in so many ways, and particularly around these really hard topics where people don't feel comfortable. I like that. Um, I like that analogy. I like the re-envisioning of a story that's supposed to be about torture. Yeah. Um, So the book is available to download on a pay-as-you're-able model at hushfactor.com, or you can buy a hard copy Awesome. all the places where you buy books online. Awesome. Well, I also want to thank you for sharing that. I appreciate you sharing the 10 tips. We're going to put a download on the podcast website as well and definitely go check out the book. I want to talk to you about one last thing before I let you go. And this is another area of your expertise that I don't think we talk about enough, and that's how to break up with someone and how to be broken up with. And this applies whether you're a parent supporting a teen through their first breakup, or perhaps you're thinking about breaking up with someone, or you're not happy with the way you handled your last breakup. How do we break up with compassion and efficacy? (laughs) (laughs) I make everything everything so sexy and poetic. (laughs) So I think that we need to, the first question is, do you feel physically and emotionally safe in your breakup process or do you not feel physically and emotionally safe in the breakup process? Because there's two really different approaches. So I want to start by if it's not, if you do not feel safe, what do you do? Because that's 
that's where it's not necessarily about kindness or efficacy. It's about personal safety. And it's about building a support team of people around you. It's about knowing what your resources are for unhealthy and abusive relationships in your local area. It's about um, doing it digitally in public. So, you know, knowing that you have um, a place to be that is safe but when you do the, the breakup, it is via text message or email or whatever else it is. It is clear, it is concise, and it is an end. Um, so that's its own really special kind of circumstance. And I don't want people to get confused about the need to include kindness if what you're worried for is your own safety. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. It's sort of like... Firewire, gas glass, checking for those things first before you worry yeah. about someone else. Yeah, definitely. Good. Um, and, uh, and the emotional abuse being just as valid of a reason to do that as physical abuse. Right. Yeah. Looking out for yourself, your safety first. And then if you, if you are in a relationship where it, it's not a matter of emotional abuse or physical abuse or psychological and you, you do feel safe. Yeah. So this so. is definitely the more fun part of the conversation. <laughs> okay. um, <clears throat> so for people who do feel safe, you know, there's, I think, a stereotype of ending of a relationship as something that is cliched. It's not about you. It's about me. Or I'm just not in the right space for this right now. There's, there's like this diffusion of responsibility without any meaning behind it. Those just become vapid, like useless tropes that don't actually mean anything and <clears throat> and uh, is basically just the same thing as just walking away and ghosting someone. Interesting. So bringing a little more personality to the process is really lovely. And there are ways for breakups to happen that are good yeah. and can be really life-affirming and relationship-affirming for everybody involved. And maybe we can see breakups as not always a bad thing. You oh, know? yeah. <laughs> I was, we, were, we were talking this weekend about how lessons from consensual non-monogamy can apply mm. to monogamy. Mm-hmm. And monogamy tends to measure relationships in terms of longevity. And CNM approaches tend to, you know, measure relationships in terms of fulfillment. You know, I have seen that monogamy actually measures things in terms of whether someone dies to get out. <laughs> actually, it, it's in the marital contract, right? It's till death do you part. Yeah, it's not just about longevity, but it's about death at the end. So if somebody is a young widow, that can be considered a successful relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, so even if it wasn't very long, nobody was at fault. It was just a death. And that's why prescribed and mandatory monogamy can be so toxic. (laughs) That's just one of the reasons why. And people can absolutely have very happy, healthy, fulfilling monogamous relationships. Absolutely. And they can end. And it can be, have been a really successful relationship for everybody involved, where it was the right thing at the right time. It was supportive of who they were and where they were going. And now it's time for them to be going in other places with different people. And that can be beautiful. And so honoring the relationship that is ending is an important part of that, especially if it's been a longer relationship. Now, if we're talking about like a three-week dating thing or like, oh, we were, you know, 
quite serious for six months, those are those are different, right? I don't know that we need to spend a lot of time honoring what they were. I mean, sure, like we had fun together. I really appreciated our time. And I feel like I learned about a lot for, about you and learned a lot about me in the process. And that's been really great. And now I'm realizing that I'm going to be going in other directions. Um, so we have this paradigm of uh, communication styles that we talk about, I'm sure you've talked about, with aggressive, assertive, passive, and passive-aggressive. And most breakups are done in the passive-aggressive way. That's so true. Why? Why would we do that? Why wouldn't we bring the same assertive capacities that we would in any other conversation? I think we're trying to tell ourselves that we're not hurting anyone. Which is a lie. We all hurt people all the time. Yes. I always talk about that in relationships, that we hurt each other in so many ways, but we've created this hierarchy in which some ways are worse than others. Mm. Right? Like if you Mm -hmm. cheat, it is the ultimate transgression besides being abusive. Mm -hmm. But does it have to be? Like I did this thing and I regret doing this thing that I said I wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. And... You know, we we hurt each other in so many ways. What does this one need to be worse? Have we made it worse because of our cultural prescriptions of of monogamy or toxic monogamy? Yeah. So the breakup process can, and my understanding of, of those communication styles is that an aggressive communication style is primarily or exclusively focusing on the the speaker. A passive communication style is primarily exclusively focusing on the other person, mm-hmm. not the speaker. Okay. Right? Um, passive aggressive is pretending to think about the other person, but actually thinking about yourself. Hmm. And assertive is where we take everybody's needs into account. Okay. I like that framing. So, and so that's the framing that we use at Unhushed. In all of our curriculum, that's the dynamic and that's the framing when we're talking with people about how to communicate with your partner. Um, or a soon-to-be not partner, is that that's how you think about what you're going about doing. And so when we're balancing um, needs in the context of a conversation, right? So not in the context of like, well, you need me to stay in the relationship, so I'm going to stay. That's different. I'm talking about what each person needs for the conversation to be effective as a communication dynamic and bringing the breakup process into that and so what do you what might you need what might your soon-to-be ex-partner need in a conversation where they're being broken up with well that'll be specific to them and probably you are going to be pretty good at predicting that because you know them right right and so this could be environment this could be timing related. Mm-hmm. This could be um, accoutrement related. Like, would it be better if we did it over ice cream? Or, you know, what can make you more physically mm-hmm. comfortable? Yeah. Should I call your friend and let your friend know that you're going to be in a rough place? Or should I not call your friend? You know, all of these things play into what, what can we do to make ending relationships as caring and supportive a process as we want relationships to be? Because our relationship, we still have a relationship with that person. It's just not a romantic or sexual relationship typically, but we still have a relationship, right? right? Everybody has relationships with everybody else in the world. We don't know what those are always. And sometimes they grow and sometimes they shrink. But once you've been in a relationship with someone, you don't ever not have a relationship with them. Right. 
even if you don't talk, right. there's something there. There's history. And this makes me think about, back to business, the exit interview. Mm, right? Mm-hmm. So I always think, uh, you know, if somebody's working with or for you, in an ideal situation, you, you want to see them grow. Mm-hmm. You want to see them do big things. Now, if you're an employer, you want to create the opportunities for them to do the things with you because they're <laughs> fabulous and you don't want to lose them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if, if somebody moves on and you're happy for them, mm-hmm. we st- or whether or not you're happy for them, we do an exit interview to learn from a business perspective, oftentimes for the company, it's what could we do better, mm-hmm. right? Where should we shift things up? next time for somebody like you is it universally applicable of course not but you learn about yourself in that process mm-hmm. so that makes me think that could we treat breakups with that same you know opportunity to learn mm-hmm. right so what how do we begin a conversation and i know it's not the same for anyone do you have any general guidelines i know that one of the things that i'm really bad at is that when i'm starting a big conversation i always go so <laughs> everybody hates it. Don't do that. That's going to be my ringtone. <laughs> I'm saving that. So <laughs> because it's wildly passive, right? It's not bringing that clarity to the conversation. And so we all have these tells and we know we have them and our partner is going to be most aware of them. You know, what are your tells for when you're about to do something you don't like doing? Is it that you um, you fiddle with your with your phone or is it that you're not turning towards them? Like what kind of distance are you putting between you and that person? And if this is coming as a surprise, which some breakups are and mm-hmm. some breakups are not, mm-hmm. um, turning away from them in that moment is probably not really attending to their needs. So, you know, there does probably need to be some physical distance. You don't want to be like lying in bed after just having made love. I'm imagining for most people that would be a bad time and a bad level of physical intimacy to then break off. So, as you said, setting up your physical space and then saying something like, I want to have a conversation about the context of our relationship. Are you available for that right now? And if they say no, say, okay, let's pick a time in the next two days. Mm-hmm. Giving them a window. Yeah. Because that does happen too where people will avoid talking because they know it's coming. I think there's a song sure. about that, right? You can break up with me, not today, tomorrow, not Wednesday, but many years in the future. I wish I could remember <laughs> it right now. Because then y'all, oh, y'all is a new word I learned down here in Austin, Oh, it's by the a way. good word. It's a lovely word. And then y'all would have got a chance to hear me sing it, but yeah. We'll have to do an insertion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you're setting up the space. You're thinking about the physical component. You're being straightforward. Mm-hmm. One challenge I think people fall into is creating openings for the future that don't exist. Like, well, maybe we might get back together. Yeah, don't do that. Definitely not. You want to be really clear. Yeah. At, you know, if you're firing someone, <laughs> it's not like, well, maybe you can come back tomorrow. Let, let's see how it goes. You either work here or you don't work here. That doesn't mean that we may not have a relationship. It doesn't mean I might not even be able to provide you with a reference. I may even know another place you can work where it would be a better fit, where they have the budget, where, you know, your skills will be better utilized. It doesn't mean you're out of my life forever, but I am clear that this is not going to be a fit. (laughs) Yeah. You know, if you, as an employer, if you're firing someone or letting them go for whatever reason, and you say, oh, but maybe you can come back and contract with us. 
you better and, mean it. And your intention <laughs> is never to have that person come back in contract with you. Don't say that. If you're pers- if you're breaking up with someone and you want to say, oh, but maybe we can still sleep together, that's not meeting that other person's needs. That's giving them all kinds of false hope. You know, it, it is a rare circumstance in which a committed, particularly monogamous relationship resolves as a friends with benefits situation that is good and healthy for the person who is broken up with. Absolutely. Now, are there some questions to consider asking one another in the breakup process? Things you should talk about, you could talk about? It's a really interesting question. Um, And I I think it would depend, you know, if you're married and you have kids, there's lots of questions. Okay. You know, if you've been, uh, if you're married without kids, there are still some substantial questions. I mean, beyond the practical. Mm. So some people know why they're being broken up with and other people don't and um i do think that being honest about why you're ending a relationship is useful oh i'm ending the relationship because i feel like i actually need my partner to do this thing that i know you can't do and i've been asking for it for a year or so now and it's not it's something that you keep wanting to do and you can't and i really respect that and i don't want you to try and do things that you can't do And so I think it's time for me to move on. Thank you so much for trying really hard. I saw that you did your best. And I hope that you find somebody who needs what you have. And just because you don't meet somebody's needs doesn't mean that every person you date in the future is going to have those same needs. Oh, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So we're talking about perhaps the person who's initiating, but if you're on what we might call the receiving end, maybe you didn't know this was coming, or you're not as keen to break up, uh, you, you also have to work on yourself to know that it's a deficit that existed in this relationship that perhaps led to its dissolution doesn't mean that it will be universally seen as a deficit in all yeah. other relationships. It might be seen as a positive. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wish that we could throw out the idea of like one perfect match. If I could change one thing about our culture and how we view relationships, that perfect match idea would be very high on the list. And the notion that one person can fulfill all of these needs. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's some really good food for thought. I think uh, I really appreciate your perspective. A lot of it is really new to me, especially the silence piece around... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> listening listening to a teen. And it's interesting because, as I said, Brennan talks about that all the time in mm. business negotiations. And I'm the one who's saying, hey, use your business skills in the relationship. And I missed that one. So you brought that to light for me, uh, as well as looking at how your communication styles affect how you break up and how you manage breakups. And I think I've probably, you know, made suggestions or offered insights that do fall into the passive-aggressive territory. And so I need to rethink those. Mm. Uh, And I find myself doing this all the time, thinking, you know, that I've seen that something works, but it doesn't mean it works for everyone. And it may not work in the bigger picture, right? May not be as effective. And so you have written multiple books. And uh, where can people find information about your books? Probably the best place is at my organization's website. So that's unhushed.org, U-N-H-U-N. 
S-H-E-D.org. Awesome. We'll be sure to link to that. Folks following along with all of this work, really important work, and check out the books as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. And thank you to you for listening. Thanks to Desire Resorts. Be sure to follow them at Desire Experience wherever you're at. I hope you're having a great one. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life. Thank you.